please open your Bibles with me to Colossians chapter 1. We'll be looking this morning at verses 15 through 18. Verses 15 through 18. Follow along with me as I read these to you. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for, uh, for Christ. We thank you for who he is. We thank you that in everything he is preeminent. And as, Lord, we turn now to your word, we want to pause and, and pray not only for our time this morning, but for the church. Lord, I pray that you would, uh, would make us a church that always, uh, until you return, takes seriously the call to make disciples that we would be pouring ourselves into the lives of, of others, that we wouldn't think we need to be experts in anything to, to help others follow you, but simply bring people along with us on the journey that we're on. Lord, we know that there are aspects of our discipleship that are corporate and, and that, that do best in the context of the church, and yet you also call us to grow personally and to invest ourselves in others personally. And so, uh, Father, make us a church that, that always takes personal discipleship seriously. Lord, we pray also this morning for Walla Walla Alliance Church. Lord, we pray that you would keep them and us, us faithful to the gospel. Lord, we pray that you would bless us in accordance with our faithfulness to the gospel. Uh, that we would be faithful not only to teach the gospel and to grow in the gospel here in the church, but that we would be faithful to share the gospel and to take it out into the world. Lord, we want to pray this morning for the Arnolds of the, as they have shared with us and for the ministry that Caleb and Emily have there and that they, uh, that they are continuing, uh, that, that, that was started uh, in their family before, Lord. And we thank you for the faithfulness you have shown in that family, but also the faithfulness to those people. Lord, we pray as they travel back to Mexico to this, uh, this people group, Lord, we pray that you would uh, just provide for them all that they need, not only physically but spiritually as they travel with these uh, four small kids, Lord, we pray that you would give them uh, energy to, to care for their kids and there would be just a great joy, not only in the service that they have there to those people, but also to their family. Lord, we pray, that, uh, we pray for, for, for their kids that as they go there and as they do the work of the ministry that there would be a church established there that their kids might be able to grow up in and fellowship in. Lord, we pray for them and for us that we would always have high views of the importance of our kids being in worship with us and being raised in the context of the local church, that our children would grow up uh, having spiritual relationships within the context of a local community of believers and that, that doing so both in the home and in the church, that they would know you and they would know your word. Lord, we pray for a, a return in the near future to, uh, to fellowship, Lord, that, that, we would, uh, that we would be able to gather again and, and, uh, in full with families and, and minister to the kids among us and, and to everyone, Lord. I pray that you would bring us back together soon and make that uh, possible and reasonable. Lord, I pray that the word would sound forth 
from us, and not only in the community, but, but to the ends of the earth. Lord, I think this morning, as we have heard, and I pray especially for, uh, for those people groups who don't have your word yet, who, uh, who can't pick up a Bible and, and just read about who you are and what you have done for us, Lord, we pray that you would, um, would further those efforts to translate and that people would hear the gospel and that you would call them to yourself and that they would believe and be saved. Lord, as we turn now to your word, uh, give us open eyes and soft hearts that we might understand what your word says, but then absorb it as wonderful and beautiful and glorious. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. I am convinced that pretty much everything God has made, he's made so that he can draw our attention to himself. He has made us dependent upon food so that Jesus could say he is the bread of life. He has made us dependent upon water so that Jesus could tell us he is living water. He's made us dependent upon light uh, so that Jesus could tell us that he is the light of the world. But I'm also convinced that God has created very, very big things so that we might have a, a grasp of just how big he is. Have you ever stood in front of a storming ocean or maybe at the base of a mountain? Or for me, I can remember being on a boat in the middle of the ocean at night where you cannot see land, you cannot see light, and, and the lights all being shut off on the boat. It was a moonless night. And you want to know why it's named the Milky Way. Man, just get out in the middle of the ocean and look at the stars. And I remember just feeling incredibly small and wonderful. There's something wonderful about feeling small, isn't there? Like we stand before these great things that are, that are powerful and even overwhelming. I think God created all of those things so that he could tell us, you know, why? The question has been out there for a long time. If we're the only people in all creation, I don't know if we are or not, but if we are, why did God create such a big universe? I think it's so that he could tell us that he holds the universe in the palm of his hand. And we might stand amazed and overwhelmed at who God is. We, we feel very small in front of these very big, very powerful things, and we delight in it. And, it, and that's a reminder to us of how great God is. Well, if this passage that we're looking at today were a mountain, it would be Everest. It is, in my estimation, one of the most profound passages in Scripture. It towers above us, showing us the greatness of who Christ is. And I'm just going to warn you now, if today's message, if you're looking at the outline and going, holy smokes, uh, let me say, just tell you, that's okay. If, if it's overwhelming and there's so much about who Christ is and you're thinking, how do I even grasp all of this, this rather, than, rather than, than being frustrated by that, maybe lean into that, absorb it, and just let it impress you with how great Christ really is. But the question that is before us all, all the time, is who is Jesus? It is the most pressing question upon any church. It is the most pressing question on any person. To answer the question rightly is to have eternal life. To answer the question wrongly is certain death. Who you believe Jesus to be, not just confessionally with your mouth, 
but, but how you live each day, what you really truly believe about Jesus Christ is the most important thing about you. And when it comes to eternal life, that's the whole ballgame right there. Who is Jesus? And so today, I want to look at four questions of this text. I want to ask four questions of this text that teach us about who Jesus is. We've got that on a slide, I think. Question number one, uh, first question before us is, who is Jesus? Well, I think verse 15 gives us two answers. First is that he is perpetually God. Look with me at verse 15. The the first part says, he is the image of the invisible God. Now, I know that statement itself doesn't necessarily equate to the words, Jesus is God. We might have a a photo in mind here and think, well, he's a picture of who God is, but this doesn't necessarily mean that he he is God. Well, uh, until we unpack it in in light of the rest of of scripture and maybe understand some of the language, it, it kind of begins to open up to us. Uh, 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 is virtually the same statement, that he is the image of the invisible God. Now, this, this word image in the Greek, it's, it's icon. We get our word icon from it. And, and it has two meanings. Uh, the, the two meanings, really, we translate it into two different words that kind of capture the whole picture of what this word means. And, and these two meanings are likeness or manifestation. He is the likeness of the invisible God, or he is the manifestation of the invisible God. Likeness is to say that Jesus is the exact image, representation, picture, substance, character, everything of God. That he is exactly like him, like the Father. Manifestation, however, means that he is the exact nature and character of God, that who Jesus is in his nature and character perfectly represent God the Father to us in the man Jesus Christ. It's likely to me that Paul has both senses in mind here, that that he wants us to say, he wants us to understand that Jesus is not only the perfect picture of God, but he is the exact nature of God. And here's a few verses just to help us understand what what is behind Paul's statement here. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3 says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Philippians 2.6 says that though he was in the form of God, the exact form, substance, nature, of God. John 14, 9, Jesus said, I have been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip. Well, what's going on here when Philip asks this question? Philip uh, looks at Jesus and he says, Jesus, show us the Father. Show us what God the Father is like. And Philip says, you've been with me this long and you still don't know? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. 
Jesus is first and foremost the image of the invisible God. He is perpetually God from eternity past. Not created and then creator, but eternally existing as part of the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And so the first thing Paul tells us in this passage is that Jesus is from eternity past God. But secondly, he is supremely human. He goes on to say uh, that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. The firstborn of all creation. Now, this is a difficult passage or, or maybe word to understand. What does it mean that Jesus is the firstborn? Uh, there are uh, faiths out there that believe that God created Jesus before he created anything else, and then Jesus created any, everything else. And they usually base that doctrine off of this verse right here. However, that is not what Paul is saying. We tend to think of firstborn as in first in an order. And this word can mean that. I think it does later in the text. We'll get there. But usually what the word here, prototokos, means is that the firstborn is the, is, it has the ultimate priority or is supreme in rank. Uh, Paul is not saying that Jesus was the first person ever born. That's clearly not true. There had been a long line of people who had been born before Christ was born 2,000 years ago. Nor is he saying that Jesus was the first person ever created. That would be a different word, by the way, than prototokos here. That would be protoktistos, which would be a completely different word. Paul here is saying that Jesus is the first in priority above all others. The firstborn was the father's heir, the one in control of his estate and all of the father's belongings, responsible to care for the family in the father's absence. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 27 shows us this when Paul writes there that God has put all things in subjection under his feet, that is Christ's feet. He is the supreme human because he isn't merely the firstborn over all creation, he is the firstborn of all creation. He is the, the most important. He is the priority. He is the supreme in rank. He is the eternal God who created heaven and earth, who in, in the greatest rescue mission ever hatched in the history of mankind became one of us. Who is Jesus? He is the God-man, truly God and truly man. Uh, why? Why is that necessary? It's such an important reality for us. Well, that was interesting. Why is it so important that he is the God-man? Because as God, he is infinitely valuable, infinitely holy, infinitely worthy, and can redeem all who come to him. Whoever believes in him will have eternal life. So as God at the cross, when he dies in our place, he makes an infinitely valuable payment for our sin. But as man, he lives the life that we have not lived. He dies a death he does not deserve to die in our place and is resurrected three days later offering us life. Who is he? He is the eternal God who became man and lived in our place. That is who Jesus is. Uh, Paul goes on from there telling us who he is to telling us, and here's the question we're going to ask, how does he relate 
to the world. If Jesus is eternally God, who became a man to bear our sins, if he rules over all things as creator, how does he relate to the world? And in verses 16 and 17, Paul tells us that. He doesn't tell us uh, how he relates only to the church. We're going to see that next. Here he tells us how Jesus relates over all creation. And first we see that he is universally creator. A under point two is that Jesus is universally creator. Look with me at verse 16. For by him, that's, that's agency, uh, for through him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He created all things. Uh, John 1 1 tells us that when he that, that nothing has been created that he uh, apart from him as creator which means he uh, again as the God man was not created and then did the God did God the father's work but that he has eternally existed as God not created creator who took on flesh in our place, but he is the universal creator. He, he created all things visible. That's what we can see and touch the world that we know, the universe, the physical world that we live in. But invisible would be the reality of, of angels and demons that we cannot see. Uh, these, these words here that we get as thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities These are words that in that day and time were often used to describe heavenly beings. And uh, some people kind of assign some order or rank that a throne was an angel that had more authority than a dominion or a ruler or authority. And I don't know that any of, of that is here in Paul's writing. That may be true historically. But if you were in Colossae at this time and this letter were being written to you, these words, thrones or dominions or rulers, or authorities would ring to you of the pantheon of gods and angelic beings that the pagans worshipped. And Paul is here telling us, whether you can see it or touch it, the physical world you live in, the people you interact with every day, or the, the reality of angels and demons, Christ has created it all. And he rules over it all. Again, John 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. If we notice again in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, we can see here that the word all things, Paul uses it twice. When scripture says something once, we should listen. But when it says it twice, we should take particular attention. And so in verse 16, he says, for by him all things were created. And then he ends the verse by saying all things were created through him and for him. Jesus is eternally creator Uh, This is why he isn't created. He is God and he created everything. But I want to draw our attention now to to three prepositional phrases in this particular verse. What's a a prepositional phrase? Well, it it communicates relationship. The three phrases here I want to point to are by him, through him, and for him. Paul tells us not only that Jesus is the creator of all things, and not only does he tell us that twice, but he tells us that all things that were created were made by him, and through him, and 
for him. And each of these draws out a different point for us. By him tells us that he is the cause, that he is the initiating agent in all of creation. It is Christ Christ who, who actually made things. He is the cause. But he, you know, through him, also denotes that he is a, an agent. Let me see if I can clear that up for us. If, if I'm a contractor who builds homes, I might not do any of the work. I might hire a framer and a, a drywall guy and a roofer and, and all of these different subcontractors. But when the house is done, I might be able to, in all honesty, tell you that the house was built by me. But if I were to say that it was built by me and through me, that would mean that not only was I the contractor who initiated the building, but I was the craftsman who actually built it. Jesus didn't subcontract to anyone else, and neither did the Father, by the way. Jesus, uh, to say that that all things were created by him, uh, tells us that he is the cause. He's the architect. He's the contractor. But through him tells us that he is actually the worker who put it together. And for him denotes purpose. He didn't build it for somebody else. He built it for himself. He is the reason for which all things were created. Hanley Mole, uh, a long time ago, said that all things are meant to serve his will, to contribute to his glory. Their whole being, willingly or unwillingly, moves to him, whether as blissful servants, they shall be as it were his throne, or as stricken enemies, his footstool. He is the creator of all things. Secondly, how else does he relate to the world? Well, he is eternally preeminent. He is eternally preeminent. Look with me at verse 17, where Paul says that he is before all things. The, the language here is that of time. It is to say that before anything was created, before anything else existed other than God, he was there. He has eternally existed as the supreme and preeminent one of all things. And really, this is a summary of the previous two verses. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and thus he is before all things. He has eternally existed. He existed before all things and before anything were created, and now as uh, as a human, having taken on flesh to live among us as part of us. Micah 5, 2, written some 700 years before Jesus was born, prophesies that this one who was coming, this Messiah, his days would be from of old. We're told 700 years, more than 700 years before Christ come, that his days were before uh, were from of old. John eight fifty eight. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now we're talking more than a thousand years before Christ lived. And he looks at the Pharisees and he says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. 
I am is, uh, would draw us back even to the burning bush uh, with Moses and before that to Abraham. It is who God says he is. When, when, uh, when Moses encounters, encounters God in the burning bush, who shall I say sent me? Tell them I am sent you. Well, here Jesus, being confronted by the religious rulers of the day and being questioned about who he was and what he said, says, I am. Now, in Leviticus, we're told that anybody who claims to be God must be stoned. And so immediately in John 8, after Jesus makes this statement, the Pharisees picked up stones to stone him. They knew exactly what Jesus was saying. He is saying that before anything existed, he was. Before Abraham, thousands of years, before Micah wrote 700 years, before all things were created, he was there. He was before all things, and thus he is eternally preeminent all things. And thirdly, see, he is powerfully sovereign. He is powerfully sovereign. Uh, verse 17, again, uh, all things, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the unifying principle in all creation. He is the personal sustainer. Why is gravity a law? Because he determined it would be, and he, he keeps it that way. Every law, consistency, rule that we know of in the world is that way because he declared it that way. As much as we know, I mean, think of how fast science moves. When I was in high school, not that long ago, atoms had like three parts, protons, neutrons, and electrons. Well, we're way beyond that in, in understanding an atom now quarks and all this other kind of stuff that go into what consists of an atom. You know what we don't know? We don't know why atoms hold together. Why does every atom in the universe not explode into one gigantic atomic explosion right here and right now? Because Jesus is powerfully sovereign and in him all things hold together. Um, R.C. Sproul used to say that there is, there is not even one rogue atom or electron in the universe. He holds them all together. J.B. Lightfoot said he is the principle of cohesion who makes the universe a cosmos instead of a chaos. All of these, however, are universal truths over all creation, those who believe and who don't believe, those who have trusted and who don't trust, those who deny his existence or, or not, those who believe that he is creator. He relates to all of creation in this way. He is universally creator. He is eternally preeminent, and he is powerfully sovereign. But our third question before us is, how does he relate to the church? Paul zooms in here. He tells us first who Jesus is. He is the, he is the God-man, eternally existing as God who took on flesh. And now we see how he rules over all creation. But, but how does he relate to the church? Well, in verse 18, Paul takes another step in. And he tells us first, A, under point three, that he is the ruling head. He is the ruling head, verse 18 again, and he is the head of the body. The, the he here is in what we call the emphatic position 
in, this, uh, in Greek in this sentence. This whole thing is about Jesus. It's all about him and who he is. And Paul wants us to understand, most importantly, that Jesus is the head of the body and tells us the body is the church. This is significant because the ch- this emphatic position here and the singular he is important because the body, as we see in 1 Corinthians and Ephesians and many other places, is composed of many parts. There might be many in the church who function like an eye, to use Paul's analogy, and the, sight of, or the, the sense of sight, or an arm, or a leg, Many churches might have people who, who function in very even similar roles. Uh, the, even the office of elder in the church is never presented anywhere in the New Testament in the singular form, just one elder. It's always a multiplicity of them. But when it comes to uh, the, the, rule, the ruler over the church, there is but one head, and his name is Jesus Christ. No pope, bishop, elder, overseer, deacon, apostle, or pastor has ever been the head of this church. That position belongs solely to Jesus Christ. And I think there's three reasons why this is so important. Notice that Paul uses body analogy here. The church is not an organization. The church is not a 501c3. It's not a building. It's not a location. It is an organism. It is a living, growing, functioning, moving, working body with parts. Secondly, I think this is important to understand Christ as the head because what we have to understand is that the church is the means by which God carries out his mission in the world. We have probably all heard the statement, we're we're to be the hands and feet of Christ. That's exactly right. He is the ruling head over the body that carries out his ministry and mission and work in the world. And thirdly, it's important to understand that he is the head because it is a real and intimate relationship between Christ and his church. Secondly, to the church, he is not only the ruling head, he is also the initiating source. Again, verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church, he is the beginning. Well, without getting into the technical, uh, well, I'm going to talk about the Greek, but without getting too technical on the Greek here, there is some really, really important stuff going on in this phrase here in verse 18 where it says, he is the beginning. First, the he here is a relative pronoun, which means it connects us to the previous point, the fact that he is the head of the body, the church. In other words, let me see if I can clear this up, He is the head of the church because he is the beginning of the church. And secondly, the Greek word there for beginning, arche, can mean either beginning or ruler. And I think both of those terms are are connected here. And you can again see the connection to the previous point. Verse 18, he is the head of the body, the church, because, why is he the head of the body, the, uh, the church? Because he is the beginning, the ruler. He is supreme in rank. He, is, he precedes us in time, and he is the creative initiator of the church. He designed the church. We, f- we spend so much time trying to figure out how to design churches for a modern era. 
And the Bible is screaming to us that we are not the designers. That Christ is the designer. And that we are his hands and feet. He is our ruling head. He is our initiating source. But he is also the proof of life. Verse 18. He is the firstborn from the dead. We have already explored what it means to be the firstborn, but here uh, it can mean the most important, and I think that's what it means in verse 16. But here I think he's talking about the firstborn in order, as in the, the first person, the first actual human born from the dead. What do I mean by that? Well, Enoch and Elijah both never saw death, but we don't know that they were given glorified bodies at that point. Lazarus was raised to life, but he was raised back to life to its fallen state where he had to die again. Jesus is the first human to die, be resurrected, and receive a glorified body. When the divine and the human were woven together in Jesus at his birth, it was permanent. The same way we have a permanent union between our body and our soul. But the favorite terminology in, in the New Testament, particularly when one dies and goes to heaven apart from their body, is naked. Like something's not fitting there. And ultimately in Revelation and 1 Corinthians 15, we see that God is going to resurrect our bodies and reunite them to our spirits in heaven. But Christ is the first one to receive this resurrected, glorified body. His resurrection from the dead is the proof that when he offers us eternal life, it is not an empty promise. He is the proof of our life because he is the firstborn from the dead. And what does it all add up to? It all adds up to the fact that he is the ultimate priority of the church. Look with me at verse 18. He is the head of the body the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That, this is a, uh, in, in, in order that. Why is he all these things? In order that he might be preeminent. And Paul's statement here is both emphatic and summarizing. Uh, he adds extra pronouns that really don't even make sense in English. It's almost, that he, it's almost as if Paul is saying that in everything he himself might be preeminent. The bottom line of all of this is that Christ is supreme in all things. Whether over the creation or the new creation, he is supreme. Whether among people or angelic beings, he is supreme. Whether in the church or in the world, he is supreme. He is the preeminent, superior, surpassing ruler of all things. Of those who recognize his rule, and of those who don't. By the way, words are important, right? Nobody has ever made Christ Lord. He is Lord. We simply recognize him for who he is. If you have not recognized his deity, that he is God, his humanity, that he took on flesh, his substitutionary death and victorious resurrection and his rule over all things, I pray today that you will surrender to him as the good and benevolent ruler of all things. 
And if you have, my prayer for you is that this rule of Christ will define everything about you. Everything that you do. Everything that you are. Every way that you live. And maybe even especially in our time right now, everything that you fear. Heavenly Father, this this passage is overwhelming. There is more here than we can comprehend. It seems like an incredible amount of information to absorb. We confess that. We confess our weakness to understand. We confess our weakness to comprehend just how transcendent and above us and far off from us you are. And yet, Lord, I pray that we might be comforted in the knowledge that whatever is going on in the world, you are the ruler. Whatever is going on in the church, you are supreme above all things. Lord, forgive us when we think things are about us, when we try and make ourselves preeminent and most important, when we try and fight and clamor to have things done our way. Lord, you... You are so far above all of that. And and as we're told in Philippians, even though you were equal with God, you did not grasp for that equality, but humbled yourself. Taking on the form of a servant, being found in the likeness of man, you humbled yourself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Lord, we confess that you are eternally God from eternity past. You have taken on flesh and become a man to to bear the consequence of our sin and die in our place. That in the world you reign supreme as creator and sustainer and in the church you rule as head and provider and initiator. And Lord, may we understand all of that so that we might see and know and understand that in all things you might be preeminent. You always hold the preeminent position in our hearts and minds and wills. Lord, may you use this overwhelming passage to impress upon us just how great and glorious you are. We ask you to do all of these things for your glory and for our good.
Show. 